let's pray as we get started. Father, we're thankful for your word that speaks so clearly to us um, of your love, of your beauty, of your um, the way that you meet us at every turn. And we pray this morning that you would open the word, that you give me your thoughts as I stand here uh, before these ladies. We just thank you for your love for us and all that you intend to do through this lesson. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 1800s, all across America, patent medicines were promoted as offering astonishing cures for an equally astonishing number of maladies and ailments. Take, for example, Dr. Jane's alterative. It offers the following cures for the cure of scrofula, king's evil, white swellings, ulcers, tumors, mercurial and syphilitic affections, rheumatism, gout, scurvy, neuralgia, cancer, goiter, enlargements of the bones, joints, glands, or ligaments, or of the ovaries, liver, and spleen, and kidneys. All the various diseases of the skin, dyspepsia and liver complaint, jaundice and nervous disorders, dropsical swelling, constitutional disorders, and diseases caused from a depraved or impure state of the blood or other fluids of the body. Now, I'm not too sure how many people would be uh, naive enough to believe that this medicine would be effective in all these different ways. But many people bought this medicine. Or how about this one? Thedford's Black Draft. Now, my husband found this box in a barn one day when he was out surveying, back when he used to do land surveying. It contains, it, well, it didn't really contain, but it could contain, it was designed to contain a dozen bottles of Thedford's Black Draft. You should know right away it doesn't work too quickly or too easily, but it was for the treatment <clears throat> of dyspepsia, sour stomach, indigestion, sick headache, offensive breath, biliousness, colds, when due to a torpid liver of constipation. Now, I want to encourage you that you can still buy Thedford's Black Draft on the Internet. And I think it actually does work as a laxative because it has a high content of senna in it. <laughs> the inventors of these mostly worthless medicines made claims that were not backed up by works, by any performance. Many of them were actually harmful because they contained opium or high content of alcohol. Others were useless because they were mostly water with just a little coloring in there and maybe one or two minor ingredients. But not all patent medicines were fake. Aspirin, milk of magnesia, Tylenol, and Listerine were all first marketed as patent medicines. But these products backed up their claims by actually working. The world is full of people who are making claims that they don't back up by what they do. Some of these people are swindlers. 
They purposely try to deceive in order to gain their own ends. Others are hypocrites who are trying to put on a front and pretending to be someone of high principle when actually they're doing dirty deals behind the scene. Others are perfectly sincere in what they claim. They really believe that what they're saying is true, but they're deceived or they're delusional or maybe they're just plain mixed up. It's this last group of people that James is addressing. His Jewish audience was very devoted to an outward adherence to a creed, but they missed the point that what you claim to believe has to be backed up by works. James is not willing to let them go on in their self-deception because it's a matter of eternal significance. Their eternal destiny is at stake, and ours is too if we don't understand the true nature of faith. The faith that saves us and equips us to stand firm in our trials. James has already laid the groundwork in the earlier parts of of the book, stating that behavior authenticates what you claim to believe. He's already said that hearing the word and not doing it, failing to control your tongue, failing to take care of the widows and orphans, and showing partiality, all fail the love your neighbor test. That is one mark of genuine faith. We're at a pivotal point in the book where James is ready to nail it to help us understand what authentic faith really is because it's a life and death matter. He gives us, he's going to give us four examples, four portraits to help us distinguish the difference between dead faith and authentic faith. The passage that we looked at this week focuses on someone who claims to have faith. But you notice that James specifically avoids saying that they actually do have faith. They just say they do. And the claim that they make needs to be authenticated, needs to be evaluated. Does their professed faith produce the intended results of love and obedience? The only way to tell if what you say is real is to look at what you do. So let's begin with the first kind of faith that James talks to us about, dead faith, in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. He gives us two portraits to to demonstrate what dead faith looks like so that we can evaluate our own faith and see where we stand. The first kind of dead faith is a detached faith. so indifferent to the needs of our neighbor that it's willing to give nothing. This test of faith is the love your neighbor test. We see someone hungry and without adequate clothing, but it doesn't really touch our hearts. We're not willing to be inconvenienced by their need. We don't do anything about what we see. We just say, Bless your heart, be warmed and filled. I hope you can find a way out of your predicament. We detach ourselves from them. We actually really just want them to go away so we're not confronted with it. This kind of faith is really no faith at all. 
It's patent medicine. Claims without anything to back it up. Authentic faith doesn't just feel sorry for someone and send them on their way. It's marked by a giving and compassionate heart toward our neighbor. God is a giving God. He sees our need and he gives. If we're to be called his, then we also need to be giving people like he is. A few years ago, my um, across-the-street neighbor, his name is Tomas, um, and I just knew him from out in the yard. I mean, we weren't like close friends or anything. So he called me up one day. He's out of town, and he'd been trying several times to get in touch with his wife, who was at home very sick, and he was afraid that something was desperately wrong with her. And so he asked me, to go across the street and check on her. Now, I wish I could say, I said, oh, I would love to. But what I did was, I'm busy, you know. I mean, I didn't say this to him, but this is in my mind. I'm having this little private conversation while I'm trying to think what I'm going to tell him. I'm thinking, I'm right in the middle of the busiest day of my life. I hardly know this woman. She never comes outside. I've only seen her once in my life. When I go to the door, she's not even going to know me. I just, I don't want to expose myself to her germs. I mean, what if she's over there? What if she's already dead? What am I going to do? I just don't want to go. And so I'm struggling. And the Lord just kind of like, you know how the Lord does when you act and have a little fit. He just pressed right in there and he said, you need to go across the street and check on that lady. And so I went. And I called Tomas back and I said, your wife is okay. She came to the door. I mean, I could tell she was really sick, but she was well enough to get to the door. And um, her two little kids hanging on her nightgown. So I go back home, and I call Tomas, and I tell him, you know, that she's okay. And um, so then I decide maybe I should really just take a meal because she's not in any position to cook for those two children. So I take a meal over. Why do I do this? Because authentic faith gives. And Tomas told me later, and I had no way of knowing this, but Tomas told me later that that action on my part was one link in a chain of events that eventually led to his salvation. And I thought, how close I came to patent medicine faith. We never know where the ripples will stop in those acts of love and compassion. You say that you have faith. But how far will you go and how inconvenienced will you allow yourself to be in order to meet the needs of your neighbor? Authentic faith gives. The second kind of dead faith that James paints a portrait of is demonic faith that refuses to commit. Now that's kind of a shocking, maybe a shocking term. But James does tell us that the demons believe. They have a kind of faith. Because they were once holy angels in the very presence of God, they know exactly who God is and what he's able to do. Their theology is perfect, and it terrifies them because they already know that they are not going to submit to him in love and obedience. 
the most basic confession that every Israelite made morning and night is in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And it says, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now, that phrase encompasses more than is on the surface. We usually think that that means only that God is unique and that he alone is God. But Moses is making a different point, an additional point in this passage in Deuteronomy. That Yahweh, the Lord, always acts consistently with his own nature. So people, and he says in the next verse, his people ought to trust and love him with all their heart and soul and mind in every generation. Now James tells us that even the demons believe that God is one, that he is always acts uh, consistently with his own character. But they stop short. Their belief does not lead them to commit themselves to God in love and obedience, even though they know what God will do with such persons. That's why they shudder. It's patent medicine faith. Authentic faith is more than just doctrine. It's commitment and love to God. You say that you have faith, but how far does your love and obedience go? Is there a line that you draw beyond which you will not go in committing yourself to God, who is so consistent in his love to you that he can be trusted and obeyed to the ultimate degree, even in the midst of trials? Dead faith refuses to commit itself to God. So now we've looked at the kind of faith that James rejects as useless or dead without any works to confirm it. And he's now ready to illustrate the kind of faith that he does approve of. And he's going to give us two more portraits that show what demonstrated faith looks like in verses 20 to 26 of chapter 2. Again, so that we can see what authentic faith looks like and evaluate our own faith. The first kind of genuine faith that James James mentions is deferring faith. It defers or yields to God in obedience, withholding nothing. Abraham, obviously, is the perfect example of this kind of faith. But James's approach to Abraham's faith sometimes causes people problems because they feel that it conflicts with what Paul teaches. But we have to remember that Paul is speaking to us about how to be saved. And works can obviously have nothing to do with, faith, with that, with saving faith. It is all of grace, undeserved. What James is talking about is what results from that saving faith. And works have everything to do with showing that you are a believer. As we define the word justify, we need to remember that it means to declare to be righteous. And it also means to show or demonstrate that you are righteous. And that's the way that James uses it. It's like what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men 
that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So James begins by quoting the passage that um, refers to Abraham's early faith. In chapter 15 of Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. We can write an equation, faith equals righteousness. No works required there. At least 25 years after this, in Genesis 22, we see that God is going to test Abraham's faith so that Abraham has an opportunity to demonstrate that he loves God above all else. Will he yield in obedience to God, even in this hard um, requirement? Excuse me. James insists that the works that Abraham did justified him. In other words, proved him to be righteous, proved that he loved God more than he loved even his most precious possession. And God says words of great approval to Abraham in verse 12 of chapter 22 in Genesis. I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Your works, what you did, Abraham, proves that you love me and fear me and trust me more than anything else. Authentic faith defers to God's will, withholding nothing. I remember one summer when my daughter was headed to the mission field. It was the first time she'd been out of the country and the first time she'd ever leaped off the deep end to go and, and do something like that. And she's an only child, and she was a delight from the, almost from the moment she hit the planet. And so my mother's heart is jumping up and down with joy on the one hand because she's doing what God's told her. Thank you. And on the, I don't know if that made it better or worse. (laughs) Anyway, and on the other hand, my heart was breaking because she was going to be gone the whole summer. And so I had to make a choice. Am I going to release her or hold her? Authentic faith withholds nothing from God. This is the kind of faith that helps us to stand firm even when God asks something very difficult of us. The second portrait that James paints for us is quite different from the first. Rahab demonstrates daring faith, which fears nothing. Rahab is the exact opposite of Abraham in a lot of ways. She's a woman, a Gentile. She's of the lowest class. Her faith is a daring faith, though, withholding nothing. She's in quite a precarious position. Enemy spies are hidden on her roof. The police are at the door. And as a prostitute, she has no reputation, no friends, no status, no one who cares for her, no one to whom she can turn to act as her protector. Trusting God is risky Risky business for her. Her life is at stake if her secret is found out. She has nowhere to turn. Nowhere but to God. And at this point, her faith is very elementary. All she knows is that God is going to give the land to Israel 
and that he is God of heaven above and the earth beneath. But that's enough for her. She takes the risk of trusting God. She aligns herself with his purposes. Her faith, which is just beginning to blossom at this time, overrules the fear that could keep her from risking all and daring to believe God. But her deeds prove that her faith is real. James says, authentic, authentic faith is daring, undaunted by fear. I remember the first time that um, someone asked me to teach a class. I thought I would die. Seriously. I mean, I could, in high school, I, the teacher had to take me out in the hall. I think I've told you this before. Had to take me out in the hall to save my memory work because my knees were shaking and my stomach was in a knot and I could barely talk. So when someone asked me to teach a class, I thought, I can't do it. I mean, I've proven this over years. I have proven I cannot do this. But the lady that had asked me, she said, well, you just go pray about it and see what God tells you. And I said, oh, thanks. <laughs> so it's a good thing when you align yourself with the purposes of God. Um, you say you have faith. What fear is keeping you from God's purpose for your life? Is your faith demonstrated by a refusal to give in to that fear? Our outward claim of faith, of genuine faith, is proven in the daily trenches of life. We're justified by our works, proven to be righteous. So let's cultivate the kind of faith that defers to God and withholds nothing, a faith that dares to trust him in the most fearful situations. All of us, I'm pretty sure, all of us in this room would love to, for our lives to prove that we truly believe God. But how do we get from insincere faith to authentic faith? How do we develop and cultivate and strengthen a robust faith? I want to suggest three steps, and these are nothing new to you, but I want to review it. I think, first of all, we have to define grace if our faith is to develop. We have to come to terms with our own depravity. We are essentially and unchangeably bad in the very essence of who we are deep down, and we have no hope of changing ourselves. We can produce nothing that, is, um, that God can approve of, not even the faith to believe him, unless he intervenes and gives us that gift. So we must ask God to give us faith. And that's the first step in developing our faith. Not only the initial salvation, but every day, all day long, as we're called on to trust him for what we're faced with. Only when we are convinced of our depravity do we know how helpless we are, how hopeless we are, and how undeserving we are. But when we ask God for faith, and when he gives it to us, then we see him move in to change us, to move in to overrule 
our depravity, our tendency toward sin, our tendency toward believing a lie. Um, and so our stinginess turns into giving. And our double-mindedness becomes committed. And our unyielding nature becomes deferring. And our fearfulness becomes daring. All by grace through faith. And then our works will begin to prove our faith. So let's cultivate a mindset of faith and of grace. Secondly, digesting the word. Christina gave us a wonderful lesson a couple of weeks ago detailing this out for us, how to start with this. But um, I find it easy, and especially the, it seems like the older you get and the more times you've read the Bible, you can just read right over, <laughs> you know, just read it. You just read, well, I know, yeah, I know this part. I'm just going to kind of skip over this. But actually taking time to digest the word, chewing on it until we see who God really is, not who we think he is, but who he really is. And when we see him as he really is, it's going to make a big difference in our lives. Dig uh, chew on it until you have digested it and it becomes a part of your very fiber of your being. Until it nourishes us. Until, and then we will find it much easier to love him. And to commit ourselves to him so that we can stand firm. Eating more is good for your faith. Take that however you choose. <laughs> the third thing I would suggest is daring to risk all. We need to embrace risk. Faith always involves risk. If you look at the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11 you'll notice every single one of those people took a risk. If you're afraid to do anything except those things that you can predict the outcome on, your faith will never grow because you're walking by sight. Consider this story. One day, a farmer went out to inspect his field. And when he got out there, he saw that it was a bountiful harvest was on the way. The, the, grain was, the corn was ripening. He also saw in the trees that lined the field a flock of crows. So he decided that he better go right away and put up a scarecrow to chase away the birds that were going to spoil his harvest. And so he did that. Now the foolish crows flew away because they were frightened by the scarecrow. And they returned to their nest that night hungry. But the wise birds knew that the farmer only puts a scarecrow in a fruitful field. So they flew toward the scarecrow. They flew toward the scarecrow. They took the risk. Even though the scarecrow looked menacing, they headed right for it. And they enjoyed a great feast. Jesus says that if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you are willing to lose your life for his sake and the gospels, you'll find it. Embracing risk strengthens your faith. As you see God come through for you in that scary thing in amazing ways. 
And in all those situations that you cannot humanly predict the answer, you can be amazed by the way that God has orchestrated the results to bring glory to him and to strengthen your faith. So risk it. Run toward the scarecrow. It's where the fruit is. It's where your faith is strengthened. So James has helped us in our lesson today to distinguish authentic faith from dead faith. And we've learned ways to develop our faith. We've seen that a strong and authentic faith is proven by what we do in the everyday stuff of life. So which kind of faith do you have? Which kind of faith do I have? Is it patent medicine faith? Detached and giving nothing? Demonic, committing nothing? Or is it authentic faith that defers to God, yields to him, submits to him, and withholds nothing? Does, it, does your faith dare to risk all? Fearing nothing? Let's ask the Lord to give us a gift of authentic faith and to increase our capacity to trust him in every situation. Only then will we be able to stand firm in the trials and the temptations and the hard places that life brings to us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you give us clear, um, clear descriptions in your word of what faith is not and what faith is. And we ask you, um, even this minute, to give us the kind of faith that is real so that when we're faced with, with all the things that come against us from the world and the flesh and the devil, that we will be able to stand firm and that as a result of our standing firm, people will see our good works and glorify you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.